I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is Jeffrey Hollander, co-founder of 7th Generation, the maker of natural household and personal care products such as unbleached diapers, wipes, dishwashing detergent, and tissues. Jeffrey has been a leading advocate of corporate social responsibility, and he's the author of several books on greener living. Welcome. Great. Happy to be here. You grew up in New York City, and you came from a very privileged background. How did you feel about that background? You know, I, I had had very, very mixed feelings. I mean, I grew up on Park Avenue and uh, went to private schools, and uh, at the same time was sort of acutely aware of while I had so much, there were many people who had very little. I think particularly as I entered my teenage years and uh, the Vietnam War was going on and there was a a huge uh, sort of social questioning that was going on with partially my generation. And people were saying, you know, what's right, what's wrong, what's my responsibility? And as these questions were being asked, I felt uh, like I couldn't explain why I had this very comfortable, privileged lifestyle when so many people didn't have much. I remember going to rallies, uh, you know, probably when I was 15 or 16, going down to Washington, D.C. on a bus to demonstrate in Washington. And and in many ways, that experience sort of shaped my life. Uh, I, I grew up both with a, a strong sense of responsibility that that we had to be engaged in the social and political issues of our time, and also the belief that you can actually make a difference because ultimately we had a positive impact on slowing and ultimately ending the war in Vietnam. What was your parents' response to, you know, you're going to protest in Washington, D.C., and you're going to six private schools? How many private schools did you juggle among? Oh, probably at least six. Um, You know, I I had a dad who was running an ad agency and who was a very conservative businessman. He was Jewish at a time where it was somewhat uncomfortable to be Jewish in the business world. And a mom who was really more bohemian, who was an actress, uh, an artist. And so they both had very different perspectives on my personal orientation, but mostly it was one of indifference. I mean, they were not involved in my life the way I am involved in my three children's life. They would periodically put pressure on me, mostly my dad. Um, When I dropped out of college, uh, he was very distraught. I mean, you know, he uh, sold hot dogs in the sporting arena to pay for his college education. And he felt that I would go into an interview and I would be asked where I went to college and I would be embarrassed by the fact that I had to say I dropped out of college. And I tried to explain to him that I never planned on going on a job interview uh, because I never planned on working for someone else. He also, interestingly, the business I started in Toronto, the Skills Exchange of Toronto, which was an adult education program, was a nonprofit. And uh, he was very upset that I was working seven days a week, 12 hours a day on a nonprofit. So there were a lot of disconnects. When 
I sold my second company, which was a books on tape company to Warner Communications at the age of 29. And he was sitting in the room and got a check for a million bucks for his investment. That was a turning point in his attitude about me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because at the end of the day, money is what mattered. And the fact that I had made so much money at an early age uh, sort of meant that I won his approval in a way that nothing else that I had done up to that point did. Did it matter to you that you had his approval? Absolutely. You know, it, it, it meant a lot to me that not only had I succeeded by my own metrics, but I had succeeded according to his metrics. You mentioned that you knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur, that you were never going to work for somebody else. Why did you have such a distaste in your mouth for working for other people? God, I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in part, when you start your own business at such an early age, um, I never had the experience of having anybody tell me what to do in a work context. So it might simply be that when you start out life as an entrepreneur, it's very hard to go back. You know, to be an entrepreneur, you sort of, not only do you have to provide yourself with your own direction and instruction, but you have to create your own context. And I think it's hard to have someone give that to you when you spent your life creating it for yourself. You started your first business when you were 14 years old. Uh, it was a window washing company in the Hamptons yep. on Long Island. Talk to me a little bit about that. West Hampton window washing. Uh, it was amazing how much money people would pay to get their windows washed. I mean, people would pay a couple hundred bucks to get their windows washed. My brother and I, who worked at the business together, could do a house or two in a day. And at 200 bucks a pop uh, at, at 14, 15 years old, that was a lot of money. It, t- it took me a long time to make as much money as I was making when I was that young. So you graduated or you didn't graduate from Hampshire College. You left uh, to go to California. Yep. I, and- I left school, uh, you know, at the beginning of 12th grade. I had spent a lot of time in California during the summer to go surfing. This is this is one chapter of a sort of turbulent, confused uh, childhood. But I had left Riverdale to go to Putney School in Vermont. I was there for a year and a half, didn't like it, came back to Riverdale for the second half of 11th grade, and then started Riverdale. I was there for a week or two and came to the conclusion that I wanted to go back to California and left at the beginning of 12th grade, moved into my car uh, on a cliff overlooking a surf break in Santa Barbara, got myself into Santa Barbara High School, and you know spent most of that year in Santa Barbara going to school. And then when you didn't graduate from Hampshire College, you decided to start an adult education business. How did that happen? I was reading Ivan Illich's book, and a lot of people don't even know Ivan Illich, but Ivan Illich was a wonderful educational philosopher. In this book uh, called Deschooling Society, he has a chapter on something called skills exchanges, and he has this philosophy that uh, organized, institutionalized education is more about constraining the flow of knowledge than encouraging the flow of knowledge. And he said, you know, knowledge is everywhere. And what 
he described in these skills exchanges are getting someone like you who knows about you know radio production to teach a course in radio production, getting a sushi chef to teach a course on cooking. And his notion was to harness the wisdom of our society and make it available to anyone and everyone who's interested. And the Skills Exchange of Toronto, you know, was not about my passion for any particular educational subject, but about the notion of changing the paradigm that we think about education within and this marvelous experience of people coming up with all these crazy, wacky ideas for courses and people sign up, go to someone's house and have a wonderful experience learning. We had courses, uh, how to lose your Brooklyn accent, uh, (laughs) what to do when your therapist is away on vacation. Uh, the Art of Flirting, uh, and the most famous of all courses, uh, How to Marry Money, which became a book and a video and lots of other things. Um, You can tell by the titles of those courses that there was not much focus on solving the problems that we're facing society. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jeffrey Hollander, the co-founder of Seventh Generation, a company that produces natural household and personal care products. So we're talking about the early days of prior to launching Seventh Generation when you launched two adult education businesses. One was the Skills Exchange Toronto, and the next was Network for Learning. What was going on in your personal life at the time? When did you marry your wife, Sheila? Sheila uh, and I uh, got together sort of at the end of the Network for Learning time just before I sold the business to Warner Publishing. Like most businesses I've started, that business almost crashed and burned before it succeeded. So she came into my life just as it looked like I was incredibly successful. The whole thing fell apart. Uh, I moved the business into my apartment. I moved out of my apartment into her apartment to keep the thing going. And then two years later, sold it for a fair amount of money. So she she came into my life, I think, sort of confused about what I am. You know, am I successful? Am I not successful? Uh, am I a socially oriented, politically minded person? Or am I just a capitalist who wants to make as much money as possible? But you seem confused about who you were, too, up until you finally acquired this company in 1988 called Renew America, which then later became Seventh Generation. Was that the catalyst for your having more of a focus of what you wanted to be and merging corporate responsibility uh, with profit motive? Well, after I left Network for Learning, which became Warner Audio Publishing after I sold it, I wrote my first book called How to Make the World a Better Place, a Beginner's Guide. It was really my exploration of well, what are the opportunities to make the world a better place? What can you do? Coming out of having written that book, I said, you know, I, I want to have a product that makes a positive p- contribution to the world, not a product that makes money that allows me to donate some money to a cause. And that was the aspiration behind Seventh Generation. So Seventh Generation came out of this company that actually had been in bankruptcy called Renew America, which was a 
a mail order catalog company for green products. How did you go about finding this company to take it on? So when I was writing the book, I came across this Renew America catalog. And I thought, wow, you know, what a cool idea. You know, a catalog that only has good products for the planet. And I love the idea. Little did I know that uh, there weren't a lot of people interested in buying those products. And so by the time the book was done, they were out of business. And they had given the catalog to Alan Newman, who subsequently became my partner. And so Seventh Generation was the sort of rejuvenation and relaunch of that Renew America catalog. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jeffrey Hollander, co-founder of 7th Generation, a leading brand of natural household products. We'll hear more from Jeffrey coming up. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is Jeffrey Hollander, co-founder of 7th Generation, the maker of natural household and personal care products such as unbleached diapers, wipes, dishwashing detergent, and tissues. Jeffrey has been a leading advocate of corporate social responsibility, and he's the author of several books on greener living. 7th Generation is Iroquois. What, what does it mean? Well, it comes from the equivalent of the Iroquois Bible. So the saying is, in our every deliberation, we should consider the impact of our decisions on the next seven generations. Every ad agency that we ever went to in the first decade said that is the worst name you could possibly have. No one is going to understand what it stands for. You know, they said you should be eco something or planet something or green something. And we thankfully uh, stuck with it. And in a way, the name became a fundamental differentiator between us and every other company that was selling green products. The name was a story. Uh, The name uh, held emotion in a way that, you know, Bounty or uh, Tide or anything else just will never have. So you met Alan Newman, who at the time was helping to run Renew America, and he was on board with Seven Generation for just four or five years. How come he didn't stay with the company? Well, we went through one of many disasters. First year, we did $100,000 of business. The second year, we did a million dollars of business. The third year, we did $8 million of business. And we expected to do 20 or $30 million the year after. So we hired the people. We rented the space. We bought the inventory. We raised the money to continue what had been relatively spectacular growth. As we went into that fourth year, thinking we were going to do 20 or $30 million, we missed our numbers the first month, and we missed our numbers the second month, and we missed our numbers the third month. And all of a sudden, we knew that our forecast was wrong. We just didn't know how wrong it was. And it was a terrifying feeling because uh, uh, it was like, falling without knowing where the bottom was. It was a terrifying, chaotic year uh, in which you become focused on nothing but survival. And you realize that if you don't start cutting your expenses quickly enough, you'll just run out of money. 
And, you know, I think Alan would tell the story very differently, but uh, there is an incredible excitement of that rapid growth. You know, you're like on a rocket ship that's taking off towards the moon and the world is your oyster and everyone thinks you're incredibly smart and you're successful. And and then all of a sudden, you know, you're you're holding on for dear life and you're wondering whether the business will make it till the end of the year. You know, a lot of people don't like that part of business. Uh, a lot of people don't like spending the day negotiating the copy release to try to save money or convincing a vendor to give you another 10 days to pay a bill. And so in that turmoil, a lot of people said, hey, you know, this isn't as fun as it used to be. And so Alan and I parted ways in the midst of that turmoil. I uh, naively said, well, my God, people invested all this money in the business. I've got to find a way to make it work. Were you glad to see Alan leave? No, it was a very, very sad and painful situation, I think, for both of us. Uh, uh, we had become very close friends. We were partners in the best sense of the word. It was more the stress of the situation that caused us to separate than it was a philosophical difference. Um, you know, at the time, I think he just had enough and he didn't want to deal with it anymore. And he said, you know, I need to take a break. You talk about investors. Who was invested in the company at the time? Luckily, uh, I had done very well by the investors who put money into Network for Learning when the company was sold to Warner. So the foundational group of investors were many of the same people. They were more friends and family, um, much more so than venture investors. So we, we didn't have people who were clamoring to get inside and tell us what to do. Uh, they were pretty much happy to sit back knowing that if anyone was going to save it, we were going to figure out how to save it. It wasn't until, you know, a decade later uh, that we took venture and private equity money. And in between that, we went public. I, after meeting with some venture firms, said, oh, my God, I'd much rather have thousands of little investors than one big <laughs> investor. So uh, we went public. Um, and, you know, uh, for a small company that was still losing money to go public, I mean, you probably couldn't do it today, but you could do it back in, in 93. So we had, you know, five, I would say, unsuccessful years as a public company. And at the end of 1999, went back to being a private company. So it wasn't really until 2000 to 2005 that you really that the business really accelerated. Yeah, I mean, there's this period of a decade where we were sort of wandering around lost in the uh, forest. And then, you know, from 2000 to 2008, you know, we grew at an average rate of 30 percent a year. Uh, and our stock price went from a buck seventy-five to twenty-two fifty. And in two thousand and eight, I stepped down as the CEO of the company. What were some turning points in the business that got you going again? Yeah. So there, there were a couple of key turning points. I mean, one was the realization that, as important as people say the environment is what really mot motivates them are issues of health and safety, and so. Uh, the tagline for the company was initially um, products for a healthy planet. 
we switched the tagline to safer for you and the environment. That was a huge turning point because, uh, you know, as a mom running down the aisle of the supermarket, you're not necessarily thinking about the Amazon rainforest. You're thinking about what is the healthiest product you can buy for your child first. And so that was a big turning point because it affected the products we sold, the way we positioned them, the way we marketed them, the way we designed them. The 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 other biggest turning point was really Whole Foods' success. And Whole Foods uh, was opening up more and more stores. They started opening up bigger and bigger stores. And in this totally bizarre way, I mean, Whole Foods was growing faster than the industry was growing of vendors to support them. So they had these big stores with lots of shelf space. And you would walk into a Whole Foods store and we would have a whole aisle of seventh generation products because they needed to fill up that space. They propelled us. Everyone wanted to look and see what they were doing and understand why they were so successful. And when they looked at the Whole Foods store, they would see, oh, my God, there's all this seventh-generation product. Who are these people? They were the best advertising and marketing we could have had. And they were our entree into other retailers because everyone wanted to emulate what Whole Foods was doing. It's it's funny that you were successful at Whole Foods because there was a scarcity of products, so you had this vast real estate on the shelf. Uh, yeah, I mean, Whole Foods is in many ways responsible for the success of the organic and natural product industry. Um, as they succeeded... More and more people said, oh, well, I want to be in that business and I want to create my own products. And all of a sudden, you know, by 2005, it became almost impossible to get onto the shelves of Whole Foods because there were so many new businesses that wanted to do it. You know, we went through periods of time where there were 20, 30, 40, 50 different companies making natural household products more than could fit on the shelves of the store. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jeffrey Hollander, the co-founder of Seventh Generation, a company that produces natural household and personal care products. You spent most of your time living in Vermont with your wife, Sheila, and three kids. Why Vermont? Only because that's where Alan was and that's where the business was. Uh, you know, having been born and raised in Manhattan and having moved back, uh, no one in my family had any interest in going to Vermont. But uh, after Alan left the business and I was commuting up there every week, I mean, for two years, uh, I got up Monday morning, flew up to Vermont, spent the week there and came back. I had little kids. I wasn't seeing them. I said to my wife, could we please try living in Vermont so we can be together? Uh, I said, you know, let's try this for two years. If it doesn't work, we'll move back. Uh, after a year and a half, we were moving back. Uh, no one was particularly happy. And finally, things sort of turned around uh, right before the end of the second year, and we decided to stay there. So there's a lot going on in your life. Your family moves to Vermont. The, the business is starting to turn around. And your brother committed suicide at this time. What what happened there, and what effect did that have on you? Yeah, you know, he, P Peter and I had actually worked together. Uh, not only was he my brother, he was probably my closest friend and someone that I worked with. And, you know, he 
suffered uh, as many people in my family and myself suffer from depression. Um, back in those days, they were probably a little bit less able to deal with it. A decade ago, I wouldn't have ever said that I suffer from depression because it just wasn't something you talked about. He struggled with that uh, really to, with great difficulty. You know, the other side of the coin is that, that, you know, my wife would say that he lived more life in the 35 or so years or that he was alive than most of us do in a lifetime. I mean, he, he was the most fun person to be around. He always knew where the right party was. We would go away together. Uh, my social life was always dependent upon him. He would always make sure that he met two girls, and I was always happy that I got to go out with one of them, even if it was chronically the less attractive of the two. That was always the case. But but he was uh, always larger than life. So it was a uh, it was a turning point in my life. I really had to, to to come to terms with the fact that that I had to be in the present and enjoy what I had in the moment because I had no idea what tomorrow or the next moment would bring. And as someone who plans a lot of things and likes to feel in control, I really had to come to terms with uh, the fact that all you have is this particular moment in time. And most of us miss that sense of the present. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jeffrey Hollander, the co-founder of Seventh Generation, a company that produces natural household and personal care products. In 2008, you stepped down as CEO, and in 2010, you were asked to leave the board of Seventh Generation. Talk to me about that experience. Well, you know, when you realize that you don't have control of things... um, um, you know, one could take after being at seventh generation for 23 years, you know, to get fired from a company you started uh, uh, could uh, leave you with a very negative, cynical view about life. And, uh, you know, I've had to come to terms with, okay, it's painful, it sucks, I don't like it, but it's also a gift that has freed me to do something else. And uh, I'm not sure that left on my own, uh, I would have gone and done something else. I was very comfortable. The company was doing very well. And yet, uh, you know, I was uh, thrown out of the nest and uh, had to come to terms with, so what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And being forced to ask that question has been a gift. And it has allowed me to say, wow. Uh, I don't want to sell any more toilet paper or laundry detergent or diapers. Um, The world is facing uh, much bigger challenges. While the result of that has led me down a path that I'm excited and thrilled about, the experience and the way it happened was miserable and unpleasant. There's no question about that. You had brought on other investors, other private equity investors at this time who became board members. How was that experience for you? You always hope that you're bringing on investors that are aligned with your values. They always sound like they're aligned with your values. The truth is when things are going well, it's easy for everyone to be aligned around the values. 
2008, 2009, the business and the economy went through a lot of turmoil. And I began to drift philosophically further and further away from the perspective of the board and particularly the newer investors in the company. That grew to a point of, you know, what I would say were irreconcilable differences. I have a renewed enthusiasm for uh, governance and and uh, legality that uh, ensures that alignment when, you know, things aren't going well. And I had many opportunities to do that, and I didn't take the opportunity to formalize the values in a legal framework that would have made those things clear and unquestionable. What's an example? A good example is one of the things that made Seventh Generation unique is that we had a salary cap in place where I, as the highest paid person, never made more than 17 times the lowest paid person in the company. In an environment where people on Wall Street and people running large companies are making 500 times the average, let alone the lowest, it was really unusual to say you can grow a successful company, hire the talent you need, and not pay people unconscionable sums uh, that, aside from being unconscionable, make them think that they're a lot more important and a lot more valuable than they are. Now, there was no governance, no legal framework that held that in place. There should have been. And just like Seventh Generation historically gives away 10% of its profits uh, to charitable nonprofit organizations, there's nothing in our governance or legal framework that does that. So all of the parts of the value system uh, – and there's something called B Corporation that is beginning to do some of that. I think that you need to build that into the governance. We have a country where 50% of the country's wealth is held by 1% of the people. And I think that's a dangerous thing for our social fabric, let alone for business. What now? What are you doing now? So... I am looking to create a financial vehicle that invests in businesses that are committed to creating high-quality, good, permanent jobs, uh, sustainable products, businesses that are driven and served not the interest of an investor, but serve all the other stakeholders that we have to think about, the community, the employees, uh, the environment. Um, and uh, we have a huge sector of our economy that is doing that today, um, but a sector that is not as strong and as vibrant as it could be. And I think that the solution to many of the economic problems we face is ensuring the success and the vibrancy of that part of the economy. The working title is Common Wise Enterprise. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. My guest has been Jeffrey Hollander, co-founder of 7th Generation. Coming up, we'll meet Elizabeth Cutler and Julie Rice, co-founders of SoulCycle, a company that offers indoor cycling classes. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. <laughs>